Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and a movie guy. And I'm Caroline Sita, a film and TV critic. The way this podcast works is that Caroline and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love. And so far, we've done three of them, which means I'm starting to actually feel like we really have a podcast. We know what we're doing, sort of. Yeah, sort of, you know, in a manner of speaking. Or at least like, you know, as someone who tends to start things and sometimes maybe not always finish them, like uh, seasons of TV shows and little projects and... So I I always feel like I had to get past like seven episodes or so before I could even say like, I am actually doing a podcast. Mm -hmm. And now we've done like three full cycles, which means we can even say, check out our podcast feed. There's three different options you could you could start with if you like want to pick an actor. You prefer a a Christian Bale, an Emily Blunt, a Dev Patel, a Mouj Bush of all three (laughs) in a sorted selection. Petite Mouj Bush to Dev Patel, Emily Blunt. Uh, so yeah, those are those we've done so far. Uh, how you been feeling about it all, Caroline? I've been really enjoying it. I sort of like, I think a big part of my sort of downtime that is also still work-related because I have a job where everything is work-related is <laughs> sure. just filling in blind spots. And I just sort of like falling down a rabbit hole in order to fill in blind spots. And this has been a fun thing of like, sure, I'll take a month and just try to watch every Dev Patel film or an em- every Emily Blunt film. And I'm looking forward to doing that with our next uh, star, our next role calling star. Yeah. And that next role calling star is the one and only Jamie Lee Curtis. I actually now can't recall like where this idea came from. It definitely came from you. It, oh, it definitely came from me. I don't necessarily think of her as one of my all-time favorite actors, but I always like seeing her in things. She's another actor where there's a lot of movies that we will probably mention in passing where she does great work in a supporting role and kind of a fourth or fifth build star type thing. Knives Out was probably like one of the Mm -hmm. most recent iconic appearances of her on screen. We're not going to cover Knives Out because it's just not a, a Jamie Lee Curtis vehicle. We She's have to got save a lot it for of those Chris parts. Evans whenever we eventually do Chris Evans. Chris Evans is probably our most likely candidate who would be in that. Although a Daniel Craig series would also be fun. Mm-hmm. And there will be a Knives Out 2 next year, so maybe we'll lead up to that. Yeah, who knows. In any case, we have picked a handful of movies where JLC is kind of front and center and I'm really excited to talk through them. But before we get into any of those, what are your sort of general Jamie Lee Curtis thoughts? Well, first of all, she's just the sort of actor that I I never would have thought to pick for this series. So I'm so excited that you did. Because again, this is like a full rabbit hole. I'm so prepared to fall down. Um, Mm -hmm. I think probably like a lot of people our age, like millennial people, I first knew her as sort of like the mom in comedies, right? Like I'm sure Freaky Friday would have been the first thing that that I was aware of her being in. Yeah. I think that I even having then later gone back and seen a lot of her earlier roles, my mental image is still a little bit locked in that sort of comedy mom Christmas with the cranks, you know. Yeah. Comedy uh uh house arrest, you again. Uh there's probably many more. Beverly Hills Chihuahua, I believe, was maybe a credit that she has. Yeah, the mo- the momedy era. Yeah, where a lot of our generation sort of knew her as a as a middle-aged mom 
figure. Yeah. And then the other caveat here, which will be relevant to this episode, is I'm just really not a horror person. And obviously, mm-hmm. so much of her career, especially her early career, is defined by horror that I feel like that is really a whole like new avenue for me to explore with her. And I'm really excited to. I feel like, I, I think I said this last week, but like, she's just kind of an actor I think I have always kind of taken for granted as just being around. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sort of excited to look at what what made her. What about yeah. you? When did you first discover JLC? It was almost certainly Freaky Friday. Uh, and I might have seen True Lies not long after that. Uh, yeah, I sort of thought of her in that sort of realm as well. Uh, it's hard for me to point to like what would have been that defining moment. I mean, yeah, Freaky Friday has got to be has got to be seriously my in, and I think I saw it a number of times. And yeah, just every time I see her in something, she's very fun. And now, now recently, I've been sort of diving deeper into her full career and persona. And she really does have a a very Hollywood career in a way mm-hmm. that you know she's she's certainly a different generation than the people we've covered so far. She also notably, and this is actually like a little bit of a runner with with Dev Patel kind of being the like picked out of the crowd one in a million story, which is part of his like. I don't know, lifelong underdog thing. We've talked we've talked so far with Emily Blunt and Christian Bale about how they they built their own careers on their own accomplishments, but they also had maybe a little bit of some leg up. There was some industry insider connection, uh, which is obviously a major theme in Hollywood. I mean, a lot of people actually can be connected to legacy families. But that is true to on an entirely new level with Jamie Lee Curtis, where she's the she is the child of Tony Curtis and Janet Lee, uh, who were basically both super movie stars in their day. So yeah, she's one of these people who, she doesn't have some like, oh, I was going to do this. Well, actually, she does have a story where she was thinking of doing something else. I think she wanted to be a cop, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and she talks about having a hard time in school. But she started young, you know, 18 or 19, and has been pretty much solidly working since that time it seems um as well as having a lot of different creative projects that she pursues outside of acting these days which we'll get to in time it is i almost feel like she has so successfully become her own person Mm -hmm. as a performer and creative that it's almost like the idea that she's the child of these two stars at least from my point of view i feel like that's less of her persona than it certainly would have been at the start of her career certainly to the point where i feel like i must have known this fact about her parents but even reading it i was like oh yeah i kind of forgot about that like i really just think of her as her own distinct entity now yeah it's not the same as you know people like you know robert downey jr i mean maybe that's because his dad was literally robert downey sure. senior <laughs> uh but you know liza minnelli <laughs> that's that's a sort of a different generation poll but but there are certain people who for their entire careers seem to just have that energy of being like part of a hollywood family and um yeah i don't know that that's so much her identity now it's wild to look back on you know there's like press announcements that came over the you know the ap wire from like the 60s that are like oh you know hollywood golden couple tony and janet are thrilled to welcome their young daughter and it's like whoa that's her Mm -hmm. like her whole life has been to some degree in the public eye like when your birth is sort of a part of a press release selling your parents as a golden couple like that is a level of being involved in the hollywood system even beyond just oh my parents were famous you know yeah and I think watching interviews with her, I mean, it is partially to do with her her age and where she is in life right now, but also I think definitely with her upbringing and personality. 
we've talked on this podcast a number of times about how people are in front of the camera as themselves, you know, on the interview circuit, which when you dive in, you really start to get a sense of how much it is a circuit, how much it is. I've seen in the past week or so, you know, four or five different articles all telling their own slightly different version of Jamie Lee Curtis seeing Christopher Guest in a magazine around the time of Spinal Tap and saying, I'm going to marry that man, and then meeting him and then doing that. So you get a sense of people like, they just have to tell the same stories mm-hmm. over and over again. Well, but it's like that Lady Gaga thing where she it. was like, 99 oh, right. people in a room. and <laughs> There could be 100 people one. in a room. Yeah. 99, 99 of them don't believe you and one person does. And it's like, yeah. poor Lady Gaga. I'm sure every actor does that. They tell the same story all the time. But somehow that became like a meme that she had just said that over and over again. Yes, it is. It is one of those things where, uh, in that case, Lady Gaga is getting picked on for something that is just an un, like just a necessary part of the job. We just uh, we recycle those things, and when they're when they're recorded, it's different. I mean, I actually have been thinking that when I've been talking about Green Knight a couple times mm-hmm. this week, and I'm like, don't just say the same thing you said <laughs> on the podcast because then your friend might listen to the podcast and be like, huh, yep, <laughs> that's. <laughs> There he is saying the same thing twice about the Green Knight. So, uh, yeah, that's just sort of part of the game. But, but yeah, she has a a confident public personality. I would say she's, I'd say, dispensed with this idea of false modesty. Although I know she also has, she also has discussed having her own insecurity struggles throughout her life. So she has, as we discussed, a number of identities in the pop culture that go on through her life. But definitely, the first one for her is the Scream Queen. You know, a term that has now been I think brought even more into the lexicon again through a Ryan Murphy TV show that I haven't seen. Have you? I watched one episode. She's in it. Jamie Lee is, yeah. is sort of a supporting character. Yeah. Supporting I mean, role. I think I yeah. watched the pilot. Yeah. As I do with many Ryan Murphy shows. I'm like a little a little a little goes a long way. Yeah, I uh yeah, I've decided <laughs> I'm at the level of a little goes a long way where I don't actually watch the Ryan Murphy show. But that term I think sort of was most closely associated with Jamie Lee Curtis. When she started off her career, I mean, she did a, a small handful of television roles, and then she was cast to be in a TV show, Operation Petticoat, which was actually a remake of a film that her dad, Tony Curtis, had done. And she was fired from that and thought, oh, no, my career, which has just begun, is about to be over. And then, like, one week later, she auditioned for Halloween. And so Halloween, it's 1978. She is, I believe, 19 years old at the time. And she makes on a shoestring budget in a handful of weeks, I think it was, they said 17 to 20 days, $300,000, all basically young people make what goes on to be this very, very iconic horror film, which I didn't see until a few years ago, saw it once, and then I rewatched it today. Uh, Not exactly Halloween atmosphere, but it was kind of a, it was technically a dark and stormy morning in Chicago. Um, what's your relationship to Halloween, Carolyn? My relationship to Halloween is that I saw it for the first time ever two days ago. (laughs) And now I'm here to talk to you about it. I am really, you know, of all the genres, I think, I think horror is the one that I just have the least knowledge of in general. Like, Mm -hmm. to be completely honest, it took me a minute to realize that this movie was neither a Freddy movie nor a Jason movie. And in fact, (laughs) a Michael Myers movie. So that's about as, like, ignorant as I am about this genre. I have Mm -hmm. slowly, recently, and actually with your help, been trying to fill in all of the many blind spots that I have with horror. So this is, like, a really big one for me to finally be able to, to check off the list and say that I saw it. Yeah. 
And I think you can feel probably the way in which it is, above all, sort of an iconic forerunner to so many other things. I mean, maybe with a limited, if you feel like you have a limited grasp of that genre, I'm sure your grasp is tightening every, every, every year. But, um, but I feel like we can see all the ways this is a major milestone in the development of that genre in which it is probably really hard to make a slasher movie now without in some way retreading the steps or paying homage to this one. For sure. I, I think I really enjoyed watching this movie. I had a lot of fun with it. I do cool. think it's hard when you are so familiar with the tropes of something, which, as you mentioned, I think even if even me not being a horror buff, it's impossible not to know the tropes of a slasher movie, you know, that they're so yeah. widespread, even just through like parodies and stuff. Um, Absolutely. It's always strange to go back to the original thing and sort of try to erase everything else, you know, and just appreciate it, you know, as its own entity. Because I think a lot of times the originators of these tropes can feel a little bit simple in retrospect. Mm-hmm. And and that was kind of my experience about Halloween, like trying to put myself in the headspace of an audience member in 1978 without, you know, the Scream and the Boy Meets World parody episode and the Cabin in the Woods and all these things that are sort of riffing on what it does. And it's an interesting challenge. Like, I don't know if there's ever you know, a perfect way to do that. But it was it was like definitely an interesting journey to sort of see where so much of the stuff originated from. Yeah, I found myself doing that as well on this second watch where the first time you watch a movie, particularly a movie with so many associations around it, I find you're just patiently waiting to see how much it's gonna line up with your expectations and when the images that you've seen. I mean, the first time I watched it, I was like, well, I know... I know that What's-Her-Name gets strangled with a telephone, so, like, when is that going to happen? Or, like, I know that she... I know that he's going to sit up. When does he sit mm-hmm. up? Oh, that hasn't happened yet. Oh, oh, it's, like, really near the end. So I think that can be the experience a lot. Watching it the second time, I think I more was able to just imagine what it is to watch this low-key, out-of-nowhere horror film without so much of this visual and storytelling language without it being so well established, I can understand how it must have just been scary as fuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is watch. scary. Even now. Oh yeah. There definitely is such an eeriness to so many elements of this movie. It is that very elemental, just like very simple fears mm-hmm. that it locks into that I think are still very creepy. Of the horror like, I don't know, the different components of horror, I think mm-hmm. slasher does tend to be less for me. And actually less scary for me than mm-hmm. like monster based horror. <laughs> um, yeah, what's the what's the scariest thing to you? The movie The Village. The M Night Shyamalan movie The Village. Something about okay, I've not seen The Village. There's um it act so like the scariest shot in Halloween for me is when Michael Myers is under that sheet where he's like a ghost, uh-huh. and then he he has like the glasses on on the outside and he walks into the bedroom. Yeah, something about things that are sort of human proportions but just slightly off yeah really freak me out more so than actual just humans Mm -hmm. or like have you ever seen that um twilight zone episode with william shatner on the plane where there's um like essentially a bigfoot on the wing yeah nightmare at twenty thousand feet or something like that yes yes i have seen it that thing scares the shit out of me like to this day (laughs) even though it is clearly a man dressed up in a suit it like Mm -hmm. so freaks me out yeah a furry, a furry suit I guess of all so, things. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's funny. Have you ever seen the um, '80s 
feature-length Twilight Zone film version, mm. which retells that story with John Lithgow. I have not. They make the monster much more, I don't know, sort of like 80s, post-alien scary. It's like a scaly, like, reptile thing with scarier eyes. But something is so wrong about that, like, fur, the big, like, kind of, like, freaky teddy bear on the wing in uh, in Nightmare at, at 20,000 feet. It scares feet. me so much. Yeah. Are you scared by slasher stuff? Is that your, like, preferred brand of horror? I don't know about preferred. Uh, I tend to like stories about ghosts and curses and witches. Mm-hmm. You know, I really like Suspiria. I like The Conjuring. I love, I mean, I love, like, The Babadook and Get Out are probably my favorite films that could be called horror, but maybe not because I find them the scariest mm-hmm. of all time. I'm more like, oh, these are really incredible films. Um, but I find I find uh, slasher stuff the most personally disturbing. I mean, I don't tend to seek it out. I have not seen a lot of the, you know, I haven't seen My Bloody Valentine or Prom Night or I haven't seen really any of the Freddy or Jason films, but... Uh, I love Scream. Scream is one of my favorite movies of all time. And and Halloween is all over Scream, Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, In fact, in the same way that in this film, John Carpenter does this thing where a lot of, in the middle act, they're they're like, the watching of horror movies contributes to the setting of the tone. And you have score from this 50s alien horror movie, the, The Thing from Another World or The Thing from Outer Space or whatever it's called, which, interestingly, John Carpenter would go on to adapt into the thing a few years after this which is another one of my absolute absolute favorite horror movies have you seen the thing i haven't oh it's it's that be the next one i watch yeah you would yeah yeah i think you'll find it pretty freaky and a really it's also just like a total feat of like practical filmmaking i think but in the same way that carpenter uses watching horror movies in this to sort of like set tone and weirdly comment on the monster that's going around stalking them in the movie scream they're watching john carpenter's halloween Mm -hmm. and talking about jamie lee curtis and all that stuff i think the part of this movie that freaks me out the most is when jamie lee curtis runs in she's seen michael myers over at the wallace's house and gotten slashed on the arm and run out and god that is truly a horrifying scene when she is just running through the neighborhood like screaming help me and nobody will help her Mm -hmm. and we can unpack all that in a second but i think what what i find most personally disturbing is when she gets in she locks the door and she like feels safe and she turns around and like realizes that like there was another door that was open Mm -hmm. so like he could be in here that is the shit that i have always been most alarmed by even from a from a young age, it's interesting the way that in a young age, I didn't watch horror movies through my adolescence or teenage years. I did like to look at horror. The I would go into the horror aisle at Blockbuster in the video rental store and look at the cases and like read descriptions of what the monsters <laughs> were. And literally just that scared me. And I would get scared of these monsters just from like knowing like there's a guy named Michael and he's out there. And... As a kid, it was always like someone has come into the house. That's a nightmare I have from time to time mm-hmm. is like somebody just comes into the house. And yeah, to, to this day, if I'm home alone, I will sometimes have moments where I'm like, did I lock the back door? Yes. I only have, you know, three rooms where I am and there's only two doors and nothing's going to happen. But but I still, uh, that idea of like, oh, someone could have come in through another door. Could someone be in here with me? 
That to me is the freakiest thing. My equivalent to that is the scene mm-hmm. where her friend Annie gets in the car and then Michael Myers sits up in the back of the car and strangles oh, her. Yeah. I still at nighttime, if I'm in if I'm like driving somewhere alone and I like get back in the car, I will always check the back seat and be like, is there a serial killer back there? Yeah. Because <laughs> that is definitely some weird instinctual fear that I have. Did you ever read the scary stories to tell in the dark? Were those a part of your childhood? No. Yeah, it's it's a if you saw the pictures of them, mm-hmm. I think you might recognize them. It was written by Alvin Schwartz and it had these illustrations by Stephen Gamble. And if you saw them, I think you might recognize them just from out in the world. But I love that Scary Stories treasury. And there's a story called High Beams where a woman is driving home from a dance and this like truck is behind her and like it keeps putting on its high beams at times. And... She's like, what is it trying to do? Is it trying to blind me? And like the truck is following her and it won't leave her alone. And she's like turning and the truck is keeps following her with the high beams. And she finally like pulls into a gas station and like runs into the gas station and says like, go out and get them. And they go out and they pull the guy out of the truck and he's like, check the back seat, check the back seat. And they go and look into her back seat and there was a guy with a knife. And the truck driver's like, every time he like pulled up to overpower you, I like clicked on the high beams to make him duck back down. Okay, I know I just said I'm not that scared of slasher movies. I just genuinely got so scared when you're <laughs> telling that story. I actually think my preferred way to experience horror, even horror mm-hmm. movies, is to have other people describe the plot in detail to me. Huh. I don't know if anyone else relates to this, but to some degree, I think, not even that I find horror too scary to sit through, but I think it just doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a genre that always, like, speaks to my soul where I feel fully entertained by the by like spending an hour and a half to two hours watching something. But I do Mm -hmm. like the general beats of it. And so when someone's like, oh, here's a horror movie I saw. Here's like, I'm going to do a really good like retelling of it in in, like two to five minutes. I Mm -hmm. that's my favorite way to experience a horror movie. Yeah, I think there is a story there's there's a rich tradition of like reading the horror movie descriptions on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. That's a little less personal. It doesn't have the personal storytelling touch. But that is a whole thing. And that that's what I did for many years before I had the guts to start watching them. Also, uh, a little shout out to a YouTube video series I like to watch. It's called Dead Meat uh, by a guy named James A. Janice. And it's he just sort of breaks down horror movies in a way where I think you can get the flavor of them and he talks about what makes them so cool, but you don't, I think, experience so much of the scares. So yeah, that's that's something horror fans who are no, not really horror fans. People who scaredy are curious cats. about horror stories but are big old scaredy cats should check out uh, Dead Meat with James A. Janice. Maybe we can get him on the podcast. Ooh, there's okay. an idea. I think my friend knows him. Great. Hmm. Bring him on. We'll see. Yeah, James, if you're listening, which I'm certain <laughs> you are. Come on the podcast. Come on the podcast. Um, I think what this movie does very well is create a sense of suspense. I think watching it, what I was most surprised by was how long it took to get into any actual killing or Mm -hmm. slashing. (laughs) It's really not till like the last, basically like the last half hour or so that they actually start killing people off. And so much Mm -hmm. of the beginning is just watching these suburban teenagers living their life and sort of noticing that Michael Myers is around, but not really taking him seriously as a threat. And the movie is just... Mm -hmm living in that tension yeah i think it is interesting to look at the 40 years of slasher movies since this time something i don't know that much is like what would be the slasher forerunners to this i mean deborah hill who's someone that i want to talk about a little bit more because 
This is John Carpenter's Halloween, except it was co-written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, who had this sort of long partnership. She was the producer and the co-writer and responsible for, I think, a lot of elements of it. You know, she was from Haddonfield, New Jersey, and and decided to create this in the, the fictional sleepy town of Haddonfield, Illinois. She talked about how the movie Rear Window was an inspiration to her. Not that Rear Window is explicitly violent on screen, but Rear Window was kind of about peeling back the veneer on all these people in their homes and starting to surmise about the sort of insidious evil mm-hmm. that might be going on in them. I actually just saw Rear Window for the first time about three months ago. Mm. If you haven't seen it, I love it. It's oh, really it's good. so good. I actually, re- yeah. I had seen it before, but I rewatched it not too long ago as well. I mean, Jimmy Stewart, Grace Kelly, what's not to like? It somehow felt like a good quarantine watch. Like we're all in our houses just staring totally. out the window at other people and wondering what they're doing. Totally it is. So I don't know about the slasher forerunners to this. I do know that this then is, as I said earlier, a forerunner to many other films. But I think something that has necessarily had to happen in the slasher genre is this kind of arms race escalation of uh, gore and violence. Mm -hmm. And definitely a lot of things are peeling that back um, and examining, you know, different aspects of it. Like the movie... It Follows is a modern indie horror that has not so much violence. I mean, it has a little bit of disturbing graphic imagery, but most of it is just like ominous, slow walking. And this movie, where it fits into the timeline, is able to basically mine almost all of its horror out of just like quiet neighborhood stalking. Because yeah, it is ultimately like, as much as it's a movie about killing, it's also, for so much more of its screen time, a movie about stalking, which is really scary. And a very, a very, good call. A very plausible real-world fear. And I think one of the things that – something that is sort of really on the nose and causes it to continue to resonate for people about it being a movie with sort of three teenage girl protagonists is a key component of the horrors of stalking is disbelief, mm-hmm. which we see really – uh, spectacularly in the sequence I mentioned where Laurie is running through the neighborhood screaming, help me, and no one helps her. But all the way through, you get this part of the creeping dread is the idea that she sees someone and they're like, uh, sure you did, you know. Nobody is able to give enough trust to these stories to say like, oh, we should really investigate this. And interestingly, that's paralleled in well, it's parallel in a couple ways. I was going to say that something that's interesting is that Lori sees this guy and then is not believed by her friends. And then when the kid, yeah. Tommy, who she's babysitting, sees the figure, she's like, there's nobody out there. You didn't see anything. And also the character of Dr. Loomis the whole time is just trying to get anyone to believe the gravity of the threat. Like in all his scenes, he's just like, you don't understand the evil that this man <laughs> represents. And people are like, okay, sure, sure. So – I think that a lot of the horror all the way through it is like, if everybody had just believed each other, then maybe something could have been avoided here. But they didn't. Well, there's almost the sense that Lori doesn't believe herself either, right? Like she sees something creepy, but she's like, well, it's probably fine. Which I do think is a very, probably a very relatable fear fear for everyone, but certainly for like women in particular. I think that you have Mm -hmm. to walk a really fine line between, okay, I'm walking down the street at night. There's a guy behind me. 99% 99% chance he's just another guy out on a walk and it's fine, but 1% chance that something bad will happen and you sort of don't know how paranoid to be in any given time. Mm-hmm. And I know that I'm a woman who does not 
particularly love horror, but I feel like in general, it actually is a genre that's really loved by women. Like I think of some of the most adamant horror fans that I know are women who really love the genre. And it's fascinating to me that there's something about this that I think resonates very deeply. And maybe it is because it's a genre where there are more frequently women stars than there are in, you know, other given genres, right? Like, I feel like this whole final girl trope that maybe this movie in some ways, you know, helps solidify or originate or whatever, popularize. Yeah, it just like leads to different roles for women than I feel like you sort of get in any other genre. Yeah, I'm sure if you saw the box office for this movie, and you looked at all the other titles around them, it would be the only one with a woman lead that was doing similar numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is probably you know, a component of the appeal of the horror genre. And, and and it is interesting that a lot of times in certain films like this one, it is both like, it is a grisly parable of female victimization, but then also to a certain extent, a female strength in the idea of the final girl who is able to withstand. Mm-hmm. Although it's complicated in this one. I mean, like, she is saved at the very end by Dr. Loomis. And then also, they don't they don't beat Michael at the end. At the very last, or one of the very last shots is they're looking out and he's he's still out there, like fate, waiting to do his 10 sequels. He is a fascinating figure. So again, going into this, like I've obviously heard the name Michael Myers and mm-hmm. A, I always thought it's weird that there's a famous actor that has the same name as this iconic horror movie character that yes. we've all just agreed that they can coexist. Well, if somebody was registering for SAG and their name was Jason Voorhees, they would probably just pick a different name. <laughs> yeah. But so I kind of, I mean, again, like I, Michael Myers, Freddie and Jason, like to some degree, I'm like, I know these are all three famous names. I couldn't quite tell you what their whole deal is. One is in mm-hmm. dreams, I think. But so I wasn't quite, I didn't quite know going in what Michael Myers deal was. And mm-hmm. it is fascinating how he is. He is just ostensibly a normal guy, like a normal, you know, sort of like evil seed kid who murdered his older sister and then was locked up in a psychiatric hospital and then breaks out. But but then he also is very much this like otherworldly figure that seemingly genuinely can't be killed, like the amount of times mm-hmm. that they stab him and shoot him and he keeps on going. But I think that the creepiest part of this movie is how still he is there is like the otherworldliness mm-hmm. comes out not from like i'm this monster that's that's running at you constantly and like i'm such a physical brute that you can't stop me it's like he's just so still and steady and that is so unnerving mm-hmm. because there's just something it's again it's like my fear of things that are like human shaped but slightly off like there's a there's this weird fear of like behavioral patterns that are just a little bit off somehow you know it's like Mm -hmm. he's not he doesn't seem to be getting like satisfaction from these kills exactly there's almost like a robotic detachment from it yeah and he is scary and how little we ultimately know about him i think Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's like the i guess maybe jaws is the most famous example that are like don't show the shark till later on this is not exactly that i mean well it's kind of that i mean you don't see him that clearly for a long time by the end of the movie you see him plenty but he's always in the beginning, it's far away, or it's obscured, or it's distant, or it's in shadow. And what's more, they preserve the mystery through the end by never really letting you in, never being like, oh, the reason he did this as a kid was this, or we have this insight. I mean, the character who seems to quote unquote know him the best, Dr. Loomis, is always just sort of saying like, there was black, empty evil. He was looking 
not at the wall, but through the wall, through the wall to this day with this inhuman patience. So he really talks about him as this kind of force, this otherworldly force, which I think I'm sure there's a lot of literature about this idea that he is, you know, an almost metaphorical being. And as you say, he's not entirely human. The there's a there's a quote from John Carpenter. He says the antagonist Michael Myers was neither human nor supernatural, but a combination. So I had to write a line there with him. He was everywhere in the darkness. He was just a killing machine. And at that time, we hadn't seen that too much. And, you know, with that with that behind-the-scenes filmmaker quote, you get a little bit of a confirmation of something the movie does, I think, in itself leave sort of ambiguous, which is like, what am I supposed to make of this guy? Is he a monster? Is he just a human with, like, an uncanny power of will? I mean, I guess you could say, by the end, he's been shot, like, five times. Yeah. <laughs> That's fatal. But, but they... they uh, I mean, the idea of striking a balance is really spot on. I mean, they do a great job where, like, it never is – you never get, like, he gets his head cut off and then he puts it back on. It's always sort of plausible mm-hmm. deniability, and that is really, really freaky. Yeah. And I think the scariest parts of this movie to me aren't even the kills. Like, the kills I, I think kind of think are whatever. It's more the moments where – Lori looks out her window and Michael Myers is standing there by the sheets, just sort of looking up, but completely mm-hmm. still. And you're sort of like, that. Yeah. What? What? in what world would a person need to be standing there doing that? And then she looks back and he's gone. Or there's like a really cool shot. Like a lot of this is just fully from the filmmaking, the sort of sense of suspense and how well they do that. But there's a shot where Tommy, the little kid that Lori is babysitting, he's at school and he's like walking along the blacktop, sort of in the distance. And then um, Michael Myers is in the foreground and you're really only like seeing his torso and they're sort of walking in parallel. And it's that like heavy labored breathing. And Mm -hmm. it is totally that sense of stalking that you were talking about that I think is almost more terrifying than the actual violence itself. Yeah. That they sit, you spend so long in this sense of being watched and that's what makes it scary in that. And what makes it scary in the real world is like, it's not a crime to look at someone across Mm -hmm. a field it's really murky territory, and unfortunately, and this is something I've started to learn more about in the last year by people who have either experienced it or sort of are advocates and activists in this field, but one of the things that makes it really complicated is it's a total legal gray area because you can't put into place laws about, I got a bad vibe off that person, They're, I need to be able to take legal action against them. Because you can't go down that road. There's a lot of leeway for ominous, intimidating behavior. I mean, I think like you can probably there is like a court actionable definition of like harassment and intimidation, but it's a murky area and and it's really freaky in this movie to have the sense of like we're being watched by a guy from the streets, from the sidewalks, from these little alleyways and you are sort of necessarily kind of powerless against that. But it's building up this sense of like, when he chooses to do something, it will be too late. Mm-hmm. No, completely. I mean, I'm actually really glad we're having this conversation because I feel like when I watched this movie, I almost had a little bit of like, oh, that was really fun. But like, there wasn't much to it. Like, there's not much to chew on. But now that we're talking mm-hmm. about this, I'm like, oh, wait, there actually is quite a lot. I remember being at, I think it it, it was... Well, it was the upstairs of the Hamburger Mary's space, you know, if people are in Chicago yeah. know, like a performance space sort of above a bar restaurant, basically. And my friend and I were there, like kind of like a cabaret style show was going to start. 
And there was some guy that was just standing near us, just staring at us. And it went on so long that like one of the waiters came by and he kind of whispered to us like, hey, just so you know, like we're keeping an eye on the situation. We'll let you know. We'll like step in if something happens, basically. But I'm like, but something (sighs) is happening. Like we are both. We don't know what to do. Like my friend and I, who is also a woman, we're just like sitting there like we don't know what to do. There's not like you're saying there's not the behavior is like off putting and unsettling. But technically, quote unquote, something hasn't happened. So there's nothing to be done there. Mm-hmm. And it's like such a maddening reality to live in of you're like, this is fearful. Everything about this is bad vibes. This isn't something I should be experiencing. But I don't I don't know. Eventually, you know, I, you know, and I think especially with women, too, you're just like so socialized to be polite or to not like ruffle other feathers. And eventually I like just told him to leave or just told him to go stand somewhere else because I sort of like put that part of my, you know, politeness away. But then I spent the next like the entire show being like, well, is he going to come back and be violent to us or something? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you don't know. The, that's the other fear of like, if you step up or you do say something, will that piss the person off more or will that? Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like one in a thousand, you know, 999 of a thousand chance it nothing does happen. There could happen, be a hundred like, people there, in a room. and There could be a hundred people and uh, only one of them is uh, staring at you creepily. But yeah, like every week you see a new story of like something, something horrifying did happen in one of those situations. And mm-hmm. it like, you can't really put that, you can't really put that away. And I think that is like, like such a part of the horror of this. I also think it's interesting. It just makes, this movie makes the suburbs such a horrifying place, Mm -hmm. which I, is something I really enjoy about it, which is connected, honestly, I think to that idea that you just mentioned in reference to specifically like the gendered way in which politeness is socialized. The suburbs are also a place where like the agreed upon story is like everyone here is fine and everyone can trust each other. This isn't a place where dangerous things happen. You know, the sheriff or the deputy or whatever his name is says, you know what you see out here? Families, families and children. And, you know, like this is this is not a place where where bad things happen, which ties into the, you know, the scene of running around and begging for help. And there's no one to help. It's like Mm -hmm. it it makes the suburbs in a place where you're like you're sort of perilously isolated. Yeah. Uh, It's like, you know, these these these. Young women are just being sort of picked off one by one in total isolation in these gigantic suburban homes. Annie is like slamming the car horn, but it's like nobody can hear that. Yeah. Or if they do, maybe they're not. Maybe or they're they not just doing think it's anything. like a Halloween prank or something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all through the movie, I think you get this sense of like the suburbs as being this sort of like chilly, ominous place. Mm-hmm. There's a shot I didn't remark on previously. It's around the time when they're walking home from school and Michael's driving by in the car, but it's it's after he's gone on. They just walk down and the the shot kind of lingers as the three girls like walk into the distance and it's a shot of I think what any realtor would tell you is a very beautiful suburban street, but it's got that like heavy synth like bum 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 yeah. bum oh bum. Got the bum. music in this. <laughs> yeah, oh I love the music. And I I was really keying in on this view to the way in which the music at times is extremely aggressive when the shots are seemingly quite pedestrian, quite suburban mm-hmm. and, and pleasant. And it kind of is like, yes, it's just nice little homes with their nice little driveways. But like the evil is like pumping into the air through this music. Just listening to that opening theme on the opening credits, the way in which that piano, which was it was all I should say it was composed by John Carpenter. Um, which is wild. Which is wild and, and awesome. And a really cool, like, hey, if you can do it and you're the filmmaker, like, to get to personally be responsible for that component of your filmmaking, I think that's 
totally wicked. And uh, I was just thinking how the, the, the piano line, the like, bum, 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 it's very sort of, um, it's very sort of, that's not openly aggressive. That's very sort of, it felt to me this time, maybe sort of coldly suburban. It's kind of gentle and beautiful mm. and cold in a way, if slightly unsettling. Maybe there's, maybe a music theorist could talk to me about why the time signature is significant or leaves you on edge or something, those kind of interesting things we get. But I like that you get this sort of chilly suburban vibe and then that like synth just pumps dark, ominous, evil vibes into it in a way that I find really effective. And it's a total, it's a great score. It's also a banger. And there's a lot of good like trap remix of Halloween theme out there on YouTube <laughs> if you want to pop those on. It does feel as iconic as as iconic and probably more iconic than many elements of this movie. Like mm-hmm. certainly a standout. And again, something that's probably been parodied many, many times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's it's one of those elements that going back 40 years later, it's like, ooh, this holds up. Holds up like a holds up like a brick pillar. I definitely had questions about where all of these parents were going on Halloween night that they all needed a babysitter. <laughs> Like is it Halloween and night you're supposed to send with your spend with your kids? They were all going to the dance from Hocus Pocus. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, wait, like is that the that is another movie that's sort of just like, oh yeah, the parents are off. They're not gonna the be here and help. Maybe like, that was kind of the deal. And then they made these movies and our parents were like, No, that's dangerous. <laughs> we'll never we never well, I'm not we'll letting my kids out of my sight on Halloween night. It is yeah. funny to watch movies from this era and it's sort of or from whatever, to watch movies from a different era. And you don't quite know if the behavioral things that people are doing that are strange are because it's a different era or because a lot of times behavior in movies is strange. You know what I mean? You can watch a present day movie and if someone's acting weird, you're like, oh, that's just something they made them do for a movie. But I'm like, the scene where Annie spills butter on herself while she's babysitting this other kid, talking to Lori on the phone, spills butter on herself. Her immediate instinct is to strip basically completely naked in the house that she's babysitting in, throw on a shirt, presumably of like the dad that lives at the house, and then go wash her clothes. And I'm like, nothing about that registers to me as normal human behavior. I I spend many of my teen years babysitting. I cannot fathom a situation where that would be my instinct, like you any get of that. Completely naked in the family's kitchen, and then put and then on throw on a clothes, clothes from the the parents, and then go wash my clothes. Like, but and then I'm like, I don't know, maybe that's just how it was in the 70s. Maybe that's just what people <laughs> did. Yeah, or the idea of like just dropping your babysitting kid off at someone else's yeah. house. I mean, potentially we just grew up in a more protected. Yeah, I think. Th- I mean, that's that's actually I think pretty well documented that like. Parenting was much more sort of like watch out for the dangers by the time it was the 1990s than it was in the 1970s. I mean, I guess I'm like, what can you connect that to? Maybe like Reagan somehow was to blame. Sure, I just want to say panic. the satanic panic happened, in, you know, in between there. Yes, that is a little bit of a, a mystifying moment. But yes, kind of kind of hard to say. I was so baffled. Everything about her friend. Okay, here's a sort of a tangential question I have for you. Hit Do me. you feel like there are different decades of filmmaking or films that you relate to more than other decades? Hmm. Interesting. I definitely, I think I mentioned this when we were doing our Little Women episode, mm-hmm. that just the look and feel of a 90s movie, even if it's a 90s movie that I have no prior relationship to, is very comforting to me. It just feels right. I guess the 70s, 
I really dig a lot of 70s movies. When I was in high school, I was really excited by just the 70s feel and a lot of mm-hmm. the 70s movies. The 70s are a very interesting time because everything feels dangerous. There's something about watching movies from the 70s where I'm like, maybe they just crashed those cars for real. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and it makes horror movies really unsettling too. There's just something pulpy and unsafe about them. I mentioned Suspiria is another horror movie that I really like. That's from around this era, maybe I want to say 1977. Um, gory like you wouldn't fucking believe um but also really visually creative and neat um but they just feel kind of uh kind of dangerous and i think i like that in certain things you know i really like uh 70s cowboy movies but yeah i i don't immediately have an answer to that uh why do you ask well i agree with your whole description of this sort of 70s new hollywood you know we're blowing up the studio system and we're sort of being filmmaking cowboys sort of mm-hmm. thing. I think that's an accurate description. But I so struggle to connect to movies from the 1970s. And mm. I realize that's a very blanket statement. You know, obviously it doesn't apply to every 70s film. But I feel like that is such a beloved and like canonized period of filmmaking for film critics in general. And I am always so struggled to connect to it. Like I connect. So if you put me in like a golden age, you know, 1950s music, MGM musical, I'm like immediately on the movie's wavelength or a film noir. Like, I feel like particularly 40s, 50s, 60s, those decades I connect to so strongly. You start getting into maybe the late 60s, 70s. There's, I don't know what it is. There's something about it that I guess it is that more run and gun indie filmmaking style, sort of heightened, but also sort of more realistic that just in the same way that I feel like I can appreciate horror, but it's not always speaking to my soul. I feel like with so much of 70s filmmaking, it's the same thing. I can so appreciate what it what it did for the craft of filmmaking and its place in the canon. But a lot of times I just, I don't know, struggle to <laughs> connect to films from this era. And so I feel like Halloween almost has a double battle for me because it's sort of a genre I don't always love and a decade that I sometimes feel somewhat detached from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I see what you mean, although I, I don't think well maybe it is maybe it has affected my ability to connect with them, but not to it has not negatively affected my ability to be excited by them. And I, I agree there is a sort of a run and gun rawness to it that I have always found really appealing. Mm-hmm. And And I think most um, people do. I think I'm definitely the outlier hmm. in this scenario. Yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis talking about it now is interesting because she does she highlights how appealing she finds that type of filmmaking. I was prepared for her to sort of view this as like, you know, I I did that project at the start of my career, but it was, you know, an exploitation film or whatever. And, you know, that was all I did was run around and scream. She speaks so highly of this mm-hmm. franchise. And I, I'm sure it's it's not entirely unconnected to the fact that she's savvy and she's currently in a reboot of that franchise. So still in a sense, like cashing in on people's fondness for it. But I, I think the way she talks about it feels generally sincere, that she has a pretty romantic idea of like, it was young people. She always talks from her current perspective of saying like, we were young people, we were 27. Well, she was 19. But like, John Carpenter was like 29. Mm-hmm. You know, Deborah Hill was like, they were all young people basically making indie film. She... She was saying this in a Vanity Fair, one of those like, Jamie Lee Curtis in a nice clean white background tells you about her career. 
And she sort of points around behind the camera and says, all the people that are in here making this right now, that's how many people we had when we made Halloween. It was two trucks and a Winnebago that had all the gear, and we just drove around this town getting shots. And it was totally exciting, raw, guerrilla filmmaking, and I haven't had that that often. And, you know, I would really like to sort of get back that energy because, you know, not that much longer, I think she moves on to not blockbusters, but definitely, like, studio films Mm -hmm. and uh you know by by the by the mid 80s she's really she's really operating at that level which you know as we said earlier is is unsurprising for somebody who has this familial hollywood pedigree but she speaks very highly about this whole thing and she you know she she says then came halloween which uh which gave me my creative life like oh such a nice thing to say yeah yeah i've been watching and reading some jlc stuff too and she has a great she has an artsy boomer vibe that I so deeply relate to because that's the vibe <laughs> that my parents and all of their friends have. So I find it very <laughs> comforting. And I think she actually seems to have a very mature and honest perspective about her role in Hollywood and her role as this sort of Hollywood royalty in particular. There was some, there was a New Yorker profile I was reading. And she, she said basically that for Halloween, she thought that it came down to her and one other person that was up for the role. And she says, I'm sure the fact that I was Janet Lee and Tony Curtis's daughter and that my mom had been in Psycho, if you're going to choose between, you know, this actress and that actress, choose the one whose mother was in Psycho because it will get some press for you. I'm never going to pretend that I just got that on my own. Like I'm just some little girl from nowhere getting it. Clearly I had a leg up. Yeah. And yeah, I really like how frank she is about that. Like I think that the reality is, yeah, of course, if your parents are famous, it's going to be easier for you to break into movies. And that doesn't necessarily take away from your talent. It's just sort of the reality of the situation. And I like that. I like her ability to sort of own that and and speak about that honestly and not have that as an insecurity in a way. Like, just good vibes from JLC, I would say, from everything I've seen and read from her. Yes, yes. And it is crazy that her mom is in Psycho and then she is in this movie and these are two defining, you know, I guess I don't know if Psycho is, we would necessarily, I guess it is kind of a slasher movie. I mean, it's a different tone, but. She gets, he's going around stabbing people with a big kitchen knife, so. I mean, talk about not just a generational, you know, in the same acting family, like that is a real generational legacy of, you know, a proto scream queen into Mm -hmm. the actual scream queen. Yeah, it's funny to think of JLC's first, like, that this was right on the heels of getting fired from a project that was rebooting one of her dad's movies. She goes and like is in this like, what might not have been recognized at the time, but is like another great milestone in the cinematic history of people plunging butcher knives into people she was also saying in some interviews that she felt of the three teenage girls that are sort of the the trio at the center of this movie there's annie Mm -hmm. who's like the little smart alecky sassy girl and then there's the other what's the other girl's name that's the cheerleader Linda. linda and then Lori, who's like you know the nice uptight doesn't date virginal final girl and jamie was saying that she related the least to Lori and found it kind of funny that she was cast in that role because she's like this isn't how i was as a teenager at all john carpenter saw something how do how do you feel like she does yeah i was gonna ask you the same thing i feel like she's good like she's super watchable she's got a good screen presence i think almost similar to something like dev patel and slumdog millionaire actually it feels like this is a great a great use of sort of her inherent skills and she's certainly giving a solid performance but also it feels like 
this is maybe not the performance you would point to as being like, this is the pinnacle of what they can do as an actor. Mm -hmm. But it's like a great use of them as an actor. Yeah. And in her talking about this movie, to zero in on what she said, she doesn't talk about like, that was the best role I ever had. She says, that movie gave me my creative life. That movie opened all these doors. And I like that kind of filmmaking. Because yeah, it is... We're going to get to dig into actually her ability to make choices more in subsequent movies. Because as we've kind of discussed, I think it was on a Quiet Place episode, we discussed how a lot of times when you are acting in a horror movie, there are not as many like character introspection moments as just sort of navigating the situation. And she's a teenager, you know, she's like, Mm -hmm. she's just kind of like looking and seeing and reacting. And she does a, yeah, I agree, a totally, a totally solid job of that. In fact, clearly, like, she's so good at the uh, basic competency skills of horror movies that this turned into a whole career for her for a little while. You know, everybody said, oh, she's real good at the screaming Mm -hmm. as well as the, like, looking out the window with suspicion as well as the, like, picking up the phone with uncertainty, you know. She does, she does all of those. Like, all the skills that you need. This is your like special skills on your resume. Yeah, that's <laughs> track and picking field Picking up a phone trepidatiously. Movie. Yeah, these are your these are your primary events. In, uh... I like her vibe with the kids she's babysitting. I think she yes. has a she has a fun, like up for anything babysitting vibe of like, yeah, let's make popcorn. And like, yeah, let's watch this movie. And I'm, I'm a fun babysitter, but like I will kind of lay some ground rules. I think that she's mm-hmm. good at that kind of thing. Um, I think maybe in terms of the horror movie parts it's actually when she's when she is scared of michael myers but still trying to take care of the kids i almost thought that those were some of her most compelling scenes like she yeah you talked about the scene where she is is trying to get into the various houses for safety and none of them open the door so she goes back to the house of the kid she's babysitting and gets him to let her in and and the kid's basically like i'm scared and her whole energy is like i don't have fucking time to deal with you being scared because we're about to be killed so she's just like get upstairs get upstairs like there's a there's a good yeah there's a very good like authoritative which you kind of feel like her other friends annie and linda like would not have handled that situation as well per se in terms of being able to take care of kids while taking care of themselves like there Mm -hmm. is a sort of competency to her i do wish that towards the end something i love about like horror movies or even more so in disaster movies, which is a genre I like more than horror, is just like watching people be competent and even watching everyday people, even if they can't defeat the, you know, the ultimate evil or be the ultimate badass, just like basic moments of cleverness. Mm-hmm. And I really like when those exist in this movie, like when she she goes into the house to try to find Annie and discovers everybody dead, which is horrifying, and then is is on the run from Michael Myers and like ends up kind of she hides in a closet. This is like the, you know, the ending of the mm-hmm. movie. And she first she opens a window almost to make it look like she jumped out the window, it seemed like. But then she mm-hmm. hides in the closet and she sort of tries to tie something around the closet door from the inside and then, you know, hides in the corner. She was doing a lot of really like clever, thoughtful, but like believable within the moment things that I appreciated. But then on the other hand, I was sort of getting frustrated. I, I spent a lot of this movie just yelling at my TV, like, "Why don't put down the knife now. Like, what are you doing? Naturally, yeah. She had a lot of those moments where I was like, oh, I want a little, I want her to be a little, to do a little bit more uh-huh. in this finale, even if it's not. I'm and perfectly fine with, with the people. needle. Yeah, love that so much. But then like passes out on the couch. 
Yes. It's like, no, get up. Get out right. of there. Right. And that's get like a big the good knife and, and cut the off his head. <laughs> yeah. And it's one thing. Okay, you get one of those because you assume he's just normal. But by the mm-hmm. second time, she's like had a weapon that she stabbed him with and then dropped it. I'm like, girl. Hold on to that thing. Don't put the knife down. Get yeah. out of the house. <laughs> Which yeah. I guess maybe that's the fun of the genre is yelling at people what they should be doing. But I do think in the end of this movie, I'm not sure that the Dr. Loomis character ever fully worked for me. And him being the one to save the day... It, not that it, it just kind of felt like almost like a little bit of a shrug to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that he was the only star in this movie. Sure. And in fact, the the opening credits say Donald Pleasant's in Halloween. I think that he, part of that was, you know, getting him to, getting a name that would sort of draw some people into the film. But yeah. So I think if you maybe have a different relationship with him, if you're like, oh, I loved him in James Bond. Sure. Uh, he gets to have his hero moment. He has a hero moment and has like, his setting up the mythos of Michael. I mean, I, I did have the feeling this time that I was like, I value those monologues and the way in which it's like, yeah, it is kind of laden with metaphors and his final statement. She's like, it was the boogeyman. He goes, yes, it really was. I like how that functions. I do think maybe it's a little less effective to have like them never connect through the whole movie until the very end. I don't know. Yeah, I can I can see the I can see why like you would say that character doesn't exactly click in. Like I I don't think of him as one of the things that I really love about the movie. He also there were some moments with him that felt a little bit like unintentionally funny to me. Like his his desire to be helpful and like solve this case and yet he just doesn't really does nothing. <laughs> <laughs> there was such a difference between his like full-throated commitment to like we have to stop this guy. And then I feel like he also just spends I mean, I guess he has a plan of, like, he'll come back to this house, let's watch the house. But I'm like, it feels like, sir, people are being killed all over this neighborhood, and you're really not doing anything to help them. He's just walking around with his, like, gun in his trench coat being, like, scaring kids and yelling at the sheriff. There is, I think that this is, there's, like, a simplicity to this movie that, again, maybe this is just the hindsight of having seen so many slasher films that are commenting more on the genre than this one is is doing because it's establishing the genre. There's a simplicity to it that's interesting to try to wrap your head around, I think, when you've seen so many more things and it feels like, oh yeah, the ending is just that like she and this other guy kind of team up to take him down and then it's an ambiguous ending. And I don't know what I was expecting the ending to be, but I guess that this, I guess that there's just a simplicity of the slasher genre too. And maybe that's why I'm not always fully drawn to it. Yeah. Although this one is definitely, I think, structurally about as simple as it can get. And and, Mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, we talked about enjoying that on A Quiet Place, that this is like, there are about six characters. It all happens on one night. Uh, It all happens in about about three suburban houses. And it was interesting reading the tidbit that it was originally called The Babysitter Murders, and it was going to happen over a week. And then because of budget, they're like, we can't do that many costume changes and like (laughs) day to night. Let's make it one night. And they're like, oh, you know, it would be a good night. Halloween. That's pretty incredible. Which I think is like, is totally, it's interesting that it's not about, you know, it's not about traditionally Halloween things. It's not about like goblins or a curse or anything. Yeah, Tommy and that other girl don't even go trick or treating. Maybe they're too scared they'll run into their bullies. (laughs) Yeah. Or maybe they're too young or maybe their parents don't want them to have candy. I don't know. Um, Or maybe trick or treating is over at that point. Maybe trick or treating. True. People go earlier. I'm always mystified. I guess I understand, but I'm always like having grown up in the suburbs myself. I'm always 
startled in the city when I see the trick-or-treating happening at like 4 p.m. Oh, yeah. We were definitely always a wait-until-dark trick-or-treat family. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Of course, I, you know, we lived in the the shelter of the suburbs, but... Yeah, but so did people in this movie. Yeah. Why aren't Tommy and Lindsay out there with their little uh, costumes going door-to-door? God, I feel like I was saying something else, and then I got really caught in this trick-or-treating question. Oh, I just like the small scale. (laughs) I just like that it's kind of intimate scale. Oh, 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 and I think the way in which it lets the sort of general ominousness of the Halloween holiday and of jack-o'-lanterns and masks like infect the actual Mm -hmm. proceedings, which are just like an escaped psychopath is invading people's homes. And I guess it is kind of true that the fact that it is Halloween makes people less likely to believe them too, right? Because Mm -hmm. they're either like, oh, you're just kind of trying to be funny because it's Halloween or this is a night that a lot of kids are like, I think Annie's boyfriend is in trouble because he like egged a house or, you know, toilet paper to house or something. It's like a night for pranks and goofiness and Annie keeps making these weird phone calls. And so when Lori gets a weird phone call, she's like, oh, I guess this is a Halloween prank. Like it's like to their disadvantage that Michael Myers, you know, breaks out on Halloween and goes to kill them because any other night it feels like any other night, if someone's banging on your door asking for help, you might be more inclined to open the door. But on mm-hmm. Halloween, you're like, oh, it's those annoying teenagers doing a weird Halloween prank. Yeah, it's those it's those simple little elements of it that I think really make it work. And I, as I agree with, as you say, like, we're always walking around like we can't entirely put away our familiarity with the subsequent 40 years of movies that this inspired. But I can definitely appreciate the the little elements of it and the things it codified, including mm-hmm. things that it, well, it's also interesting to look at things that are accidentally codified because definitely this is a major proto-narrative of like the virgin survives. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter both said like that was unintentional. That was not really their take. They were not trying to make a moral statement about sex. I mean, a lot of people have sort of observed like the relationship to sex was changing in the 80s and like to sexually transmitted diseases and mm-hmm. you know it, it turned into this whole like horror thing around it but in this they were they sort of talk about like the other two girls were sort of preoccupied with things it wasn't specifically like they had sex and she didn't it was like they were preoccupied and distracted and that made them vulnerable whereas like glory was a lonely person who was always kind of mm. you know introspective and looking out windows and thinking and those things put her in a place where she was she was more prepared to perceive the threat beforehand. Because it is interesting the way that, you know, a lot of horror movies have sort of extended periods of like running in fear before the killer like picks people off. And all of these, all the victims in this movie, like don't know until one second before that anything is wrong. Like they don't, they aren't like a killer is out there. You know, they just are going about their business thinking like maybe the wind blew the door open or or whatever yeah if anything they're way too oblivious (laughs) yes i mean yeah they're they're yeah they definitely like should turn around and see him but you know that's that's the way that's the way it goes yeah yeah no that's an interesting call that they're it that what sets laurie apart is she's a little bit more nervous i guess her inherent nervousness which seems to sort of be the thing that's keeping her from dating in a way because she's Mm -hmm. like anxious about you know asking out the boy she likes or whatever is sort of does wind up protecting her a little bit Again, yeah. I really can't em- overemphasize how much the Boy Meets World horror movie parody episode taught me everything about horror movie tropes. Like, that's really where my understanding of the genre came. I'm not, not from Scream, not from the actual horror movies. It's just they took one Boy Meets World episode and did basically like a Scream style horror parody 
Mm-hmm. And one of the big running tropes was Corey repeatedly thanking Topanga for not having sex with him because that meant they would both get to survive the <laughs> event. Oh, Corey, you little Dorcas. <laughs> so that was really formative. Maybe I'll have to try to track that down somewhere. Yeah, it's a fun. I'd be curious to see how it holds up. I have Disney Plus. Is it on Disney Plus? Oh, I hope so. Whoa, Dad, you might have just sent me down a rabbit hole. If you're telling me all of Boy Meets World is on Disney Plus. She has cleared the decks of the newsroom. It's time to watch it's Boy Meets World. It's time for underpants. Wait, did you watch Boy Meets World? No. <laughs> okay, well, hope someone enjoyed that reference. Um, Actually, I saw a handful of episodes, but that particular reference is not, uh, not stuck with me. Underpants. I really like the shot to return to Halloween. I really like the shot where he stabs Linda's boyfriend mm-hmm. and then just kind of like cocks his head and looks at him. Mm-hmm. That is creepy as hell. Yeah, there's like no satisfaction no. or anything. It's just like I'm I'm gonna I'm killing and I'm gonna keep killing. Yeah. He's like, Oh, that was interesting. Yeah. There is a weird like sexual undercurrent slightly. Well, for sure. I mean he kills his older sister. When she's seemingly because she's off like having sex and I don't yeah. know, not looking after him or, or something. There's something definitely that feels like that's a trigger for him in some way. Uh-huh. And and there is there is when he's strangling Linda and she's kind of like making these like, I don't know, a few degrees away from sex, like moaning yeah. and gasping noises, and he's like grunting and his like his whole heavy breathing. Even the stuff that's not explicitly sexual kind of has this weird sort of like dirty perverse current to it in a way that is interesting to parse for sure and that goes back to that stalking thing i think of the heavy Mm -hmm. breathing and the sort of like what are you what is the stalker getting out of this seemingly getting out of this thing even before any violence occurs Mm -hmm. and it's interesting that like that all feels like very everyday real life horrors of just like not knowing what strangers are thinking or what they're after or like who Mm -hmm. you can trust who might be watching you when you're out on the street because, like, that's something I think about a lot is how, like, if you're almost anywhere uh, except out in the middle of the woods, and then even then, you know, someone could be watching and you might not know it. So I think it's good to sort of, like, live your life knowing that someone might be watching you. Well, I say that. I'm someone who still walks around my apartment naked all the time. But... <laughs> also, wow, that was a very, like, cynic- that was an unexpectedly cynical philosophy from you, I would say. What, that I assume people are always watching you? In a creepy way, yeah. I didn't say necessarily in a creepy way, but you're always seen. Hmm. You're always, I think you're always, you can kind of behave as if you're always being beheld by someone. Wow. I don't think about that. I don't, I don't necessarily disagree. That's just never a thought that would have occurred to me. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm. Maybe this is your, your actor point of view coming out. Uh, All the world's a stage, Ned. Or it's, yeah, it might be my all the world's a stage. But I like that. I like that it, it plays with those things, but it also has this totally mythic. I just picked out that moment in the, in the classroom where the teacher is talking about fate personified and like mm-hmm. you cannot escape your fate. It's without coming back and hammering that home, you do get the sense of like this guy is just an un an unkillable force. And you get that entirely within this movie, although of course that gets hammered into the ground by the fact that there are sequels upon sequels upon sequels yeah. to this film. Yeah, I'm I'm sure at some point I'll do some more. This will be when I'll use my wikipedia slash people describing things to me skills i can't imagine i will ever be watching i'm excited to check H2O. out certain elements of other of the yeah. halloween franchise i can't imagine i will ever be a completionist with you know halloween yeah. three or or yeah. five or whatever halloween in space like i'm sure that there's elements 
I will skip of this franchise. Yeah. Okay. Well, I forget. Were you discussing this on the podcast last time? So it's not Halloween in space. It's Jason in space. Halloween never right. goes to space. It was, I always get H2O and Jason X confused, but um, never goes to space, but there's a lot. Halloween 3 actually is interesting because Halloween 3 is a completely unconnected story that's about like very supernatural things like cursed masks or something. And the idea was that Halloween would become an anthology franchise and every movie would tell a different, but then they just ditched that. Then audience says, no, we want Michael Myers. We want Michael Myers back. And they, they capitulated, although I think many of the original artists like bowed out after that. As I mentioned, John Carpenter went on to make uh, The Thing, absolutely one of my favorite horror movies of all time, as well as uh, Big Trouble in Little China, a movie I have a soft spot for. And uh, JLC obviously has a long and storied career after this, which we will which we will dig into in time. Any other thoughts on Halloween you want to get out there? I mean, it was just fun to check it out. I'm glad that this podcast inspired that. I'm glad that I watched it during the day and that we are recording this episode during the day so that I'm not really freaking myself out. Just go check your exits though, right? Check your locked doors. Oh, I always do. Um, Here, I'll read one more quote that I enjoyed uh, from JLC. If I had to analyze it, which of course, you know, because the problem is I can say all that and you guys will be like, wow, she's really smart and she was really articulate and really thoughtful. But the truth is, it's a fucking William Shatner mask. Do you know what I mean? I'm talking out my butt because the truth is, I don't know anything about why he endures. I'm just glad he does because he's my buddy, me and my shadow. Where would I be without Michael Myers? You know what I'm saying? I'm grateful to him for all of his badness. A incredible quote. feel like really sums up that frankness that I'm already coming to appreciate about Jamie Lee Curtis. B, mm-hmm. I guess we should acknowledge that the Michael Myers mask is a William Shatner mask that they bought like from a literal Halloween store cut the eye holes bigger and like spray painted white, which is wild and not a fact I knew until reading the Wikipedia page for Halloween. Yeah, like a $2 mask and now like one of the most iconic pieces of uh, horror genre production design ever. I mean, I guess sometimes that, what's that quote? Something is the mother of invention, limitation? Necessity, wait, something like that. (laughs) Something like that. Maybe it just means go out and make your indie movies, kids. Right, you know? exactly. Go out you'll and just come up with iconic things. Yeah, like maybe maybe you'll you'll catch lightning in a bottle. Just like go make indie movies, do it. So after Halloween, JLC does three more horror films in the year 1980. She's just banging them out. She does The Fog, Terror Train, and Prom Night. Which have you seen any of those? No, I saw the Prom Night remake, PG-13 mm. remake, because it was coming out the year I was going to prom. So my oh. friends and I thought, this will be fun to see. Couldn't tell you a single thing about it. I've not seen Prom Night. I've seen a disco dancing scene from Prom Night, which was, I will say, extremely groovy. <laughs> you know what? Original Halloween is also pretty groovy. Jamie Lee Curtis has some great, like, high-waisted bell-bottom pants she wears. Yeah. Yeah, the style, the style is great. And I think those were, you know part of indie film those were all her uh wardrobe or Love it. she looks fab said she went and she went to jc penny and bought her whole wardrobe for the film for less than 100 bucks <laughs> jc wait what's her name jlc at jc penny that's something maybe at jcp yeah i've seen parts of terror train that's a fun one because it's a halloween party on a train and the killer keeps taking new costumes so oh, that's really fun yeah you know how it's like usually it's like okay He's in the scream mask. Michael wants to look out for him. The scream guy wears the scream mask. Uh, My buddy Valentine wears the minor outfit. But this is like, they just keep taking people's costumes. And uh, so you never know what the killer is going to look like. That's really fun. And I love things that's on trains. 
And then the fog sure. is cool. The fog is like a little coastal town, and it's like ghost pirates. And uh, I sure love, I sure love ghost pirates. So, Go- did they remake the fog? Yes, yes. I guess they remade both both of those. Maybe, maybe the remake of Terror Train will come out sometime soon. Yeah. Also, just so that we don't get emails and tweets explaining, I did look up the quote as necessity as the mother of invention. So you were ah, correct about that. Great. This doesn't seem so far like anybody's felt the need to email or, or tweet any <laughs> no, corrections at us. But, maybe but they were someday. probably screaming in their cars that we weren't getting it correct. So I know I do that a them. lot when I'm listening to other podcasts and they have the kind of brain fart that I have. And I'm like, it's this. You well, it was like the equivalent of me yelling at Lori to put, not put down that knife. Don't that put situation. down the knife, Lori. <laughs> so after that, she does another Halloween film, um, a few other films. And in 1983, she's in Trading Places, a uh, John Landis film, which is another breakout turn for her and kind of like a coup for a horror actress because the way she talks about it, she said, John Landis cast me over protest and in fact rage on the part of the studios because I think the impression is like horror actresses were sort of a, a permanently C-list class of movie stars. And uh, she couldn't be in this movie, but John Landis went to bat for her. And uh, she connects that performance, which sort of introduced her as a comedian and on a larger stage, to uh, John Cleese seeing her and writing a part for her specifically in the film that we will be covering next week, which is A Fish Called Wanda. So next week, we're going to cover that film. We have a good friend joining us for that. So I'm excited to introduce you all to another guest. Any closing thoughts on, uh, on Halloween? I would say people should just go watch some Jamie Lee Curtis interviews. She's a really fun interview guest. And yeah. just her frankness. I mean, that quote you read out about her, her views on Michael Myers, like, she's just, she's real fun. I've been, I, I have been really enjoying seeing her little personality more than I think I, I realized she yeah. had. The, uh, I read a fun profile on her that you sent me in AARP. I like the AARP <laughs> perspective on her. Yes. It's like, she's over 60, but she's living her life, and you can too. Well, and I guess the only other thing about Halloween, too, is like, she's currently part of a new trilogy. Like, this is still, it was the defining thing at the start of her career, and she has now swung around to, you know, far from distancing herself from it, like, putting herself more at the center of it than ever. She's back in, and I'm very curious about what sort of, what sort of storytelling choices, because I assume she gets some kind of executive producer- autonomy on it but or or maybe she just likes the story but i'm curious what the story is about these days um there's one from two years ago which is called halloween there's one coming out this year called halloween kills uh which maybe we will uh re-promote this episode and maybe it's halloween now and you're listening to that in anticipation of halloween kills and then halloween ends afterwards a premise that i view with some skepticism we don't want halloween to end no we want kids to be trick-or-treating forever. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, we want kids to be getting stabbed by Michael Myers forever. Michael Myers forever. You know what? Somebody does, clearly. Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Ned Baker and Caroline Sita. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wonserski. You can follow us on Twitter, at Roll Calling, and email us at rollcalling at gmail.com. That's roll, R-O-L-E. You can also rate and review our podcast on the Apple Podcast app or on whatever interface you use to get your podcast, or just tell your friend or your mom to give us a listen. I know our moms like the show. (laughs) Hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. Uh, Honestly, my mom probably won't listen to this episode because she she doesn't like horror movies. But nevertheless, next week, we're going to come back for some hijinks with a fish called Wanda. 
Until then... I hate a guy with a car and no sense of humor.